You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. We've come now to the judgment seat of Christ, and this, of course, can be a subject that can stir in us a degree of trepidation. So the question we asked right at the outset is, should we fear the judgment seat? We have a hymn, hymn 361, which amongst other things says, let faith cast out your fear, and also go meet him as he cometh with joy and not with fear. But of course, we know from our personal experience, brothers and sisters and young people, for some of us, it's a long time ago that we sat for a school exam. Maybe a long time ago that in our teenage years, we went for a driving test to get our driver's license. But if you can remember back that far, you'll remember that you went to that event with some degree of trepidation. And it will be the same at the judgment seat. This is going to be an examination of our entire life in the truth. And so we're going to have to stand before the angel first and then pass before our Lord Jesus Christ, that is going to be the time of destiny for us all. So we deceive ourselves if we think that we're not going to have a sense of trepidation or fear. That's not the question. The question is, what kind of fear will it be? This is the important issue. Will it be sheer dread or sensitivity to the divine that we will be confronting at that time? Well, I'm, ho- I'm hoping it will be the kind of godly fear that we're going to see the scripture counsels us to have. Because you see, that is a fear that will get us to, to the right hand of our Lord Jesus Christ, the kind of reverence and fear that we should adopt throughout our life. Now, in recent years, some have sought to ameliorate that fear, the prospect of the judgment seat, by emphasising phrases like, ye have eternal life. You might want to come along to the first of John. We're going to spend a little bit of time in the first epistle of John. It's very important in relation to the subject of the judgment seat. So they pick up passages like this, 1 John 5 and verse 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. Well, it's true that we are related to things that belong to eternal life. We've made a covenant with our God. We've entered into that covenant through our belief in the promises made to the fathers. We've been baptised into Christ. We have a personal relationship with our God. And because of that standing, we are related to eternal life. We don't have eternal life and we won't get eternal life unless we are found to be walking in the way. So John's going to make that very clear as he proceeds. You know, it's no point in trying to ameliorate the the prospect of the judgment seat by false notions. We've got to set forth very clearly what the scripture says about these things. So, in relation to that, some have sought to amend certain uh, views of the judgment seat. And there's no need to amend a long-standing Christadelphian teaching on this subject. The antidote to unnecessary fear is well expressed here, as I said in the first epistle of John. Let's have a look at a few passages here. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. What a privilege that is. 
Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So that's the great prospect before us. What a, what a wonderful privilege it is to stand in that position. This is why we are related to the things of eternal life. But look at the next verse, verse 3. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. So it comes back to performance. It comes back to what we do. There are those who say it's not about works. Well, I would remind them that right at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 22, our Lord Jesus Christ said he's coming to give to every man according to his works. It's about what they have done. We're going to see that come out very clearly in our consideration of the judgment seat of Christ. So what does it come back to? Well, we're all imperfect. We all fail, sometimes miserably fail. That's just part and parcel of human nature. But it's all about intent. In genuine intent to do what is right is the key element here, brothers and sisters and young people. Come along a bit further in chapter 3 of the first of John to verse 18. My little children, he says, let us not love in word, neither in tongue. So, you know, it's not just about saying we've got eternal life. But love, he says, in deed and in truth. So it is about performance. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts in his presence, as it should read. Now, you'll notice that some margins will have for that word assure, persuade. Persuade our hearts in his presence. So how do you do that? Well, by being found walking in the way by doing the things that are right, having good intent to do what is right, even though you will fail along the way. But read on in verse 20 and 21. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Now, you and I, brothers and sisters and young people, have got a heart that is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, says Jeremiah 17 verse 9. And we can deceive ourselves. But you see, we can't deceive God. But if we with this kind of heart that can deceive ourselves, if we know that we're not putting in good intent, we're not putting in what we know we should put in, if we know that, well, what about God? He doesn't have a heart that can be deceived. He sees straight through us. He knows our motives. He knows everything that we stand for. And so it does come back, doesn't it, to good intent to do the right thing. Read on then, verse 21. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, that is, if we know that we are trying to do the right thing, then have we confidence toward God. But you might say, well, what about failure, which is so unfortunately frequent in our lives? Well, there's forgiveness for failure, and it's guaranteed where there is genuine intent now, I'm going, to, I'm going to hold something in First John, because we'll be back here shortly. Come back to Proverbs 28, which is one of my favourite passages in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 28 is about how we should view failure and how to deal with failure. We read there in Proverbs 28 and at verse 13, 
He that covereth his sins, which of course is a common practice of man, we try and hide. I mean, David hid his sin, didn't he, for nine months until God uncovered it for him. It's not a good policy to cover your sins. It's a, it's a good policy to, to admit them straight away. To, to be right up front and say, look, I've messed up again. You do that, you're a good intent. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth, and the word means to confess, and forsaketh them, it means to loosen or relinquish, in other words, seeks to do differently, seeks not to go down that path again, although they might, but the intent is there not to go down that path. It then says at the end of verse 13, shall have mercy. It doesn't say, might have mercy? You know, maybe God will be kind that day? No, it says, they shall have mercy. So we can have confidence in that, brothers and sisters. Look at the next verse. Verse 14, happy is the Adam, as the word is in the Hebrew, we're all Adams, unfortunately, that feareth always. So there's a kind of fear here that we should have. This is this godly, reverential fear. This is the recognition of the importance of our God in our life, of his greatness far above us, and our need to bow the knee before him. That's the kind of good intent and reverential fear he's looking for. But, and there's always a but, isn't there? But he that hardeneth his heart, which men commonly do, shall fall into mischief. So that's a very, very good passage to, that helps us to be free of the kind of fear that we, can, we might feel at the judgment seat of Christ. If you are confident that God has forgiven you, those sins will not be brought up, as we will consider in our study, they will not be brought up at the judgment seat of Christ. That's very clear from places like Ezekiel chapter 18, which we'll examine in due time. They will not be mentioned. So that David will not have mentioned to him at the judgment seat his sin of Bathsheba. Not a single word, brothers and sisters, about that sin and about the murder of Uriah, her husband. Not a word will be spoken to David about that. That's the kind of confidence that we have to have. And if you've got that confidence, then you're not going to have fear. But we are going to this place. We are going to Sinai, and it's a fearful place. It was a fearful place in the past. Hebrews 12, verse 18. It was the mount that might be touched, but burned with fire. Blackness and darkness and tempest was there, and even Moses quaked greatly at the presence of deity in that place. So that's where we're going. So it's the kind of place that can generate fear. But at the end of Hebrews 12, this is what the apostle says in verses 28 and 29. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us, it says have, it means literally in the Greek to hold fast to, let us hold fast to grace. Just been talking about that. Hold fast to grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably. So this is the other side of that coin, isn't it? Forgiveness is one thing. Performance is another. That we might serve God acceptably with reverence, it's that fear we were talking about, and godly fear. That's what God wants to see in us, godly fear. Because we are dealing with a God, says the Apostle, who is a consuming fire, and he will not treat lightly those who have turned their backs against him, or who spit in his face, or seek their own way. He will not deal with them very kindly. Now, if you've, you've got a finger back in 1 John, come back to 1 John 4. This is one of the most important passages in relation to the judgment seat. 1 John 4, verses 17 and 18. 
Now we're, con we're very uh, conscious, of course, of the way the Apostle uses the word agape in this epistle. We know what agape love is. It's that sacrificial love. It's the, the love of the will, the desire to do what is right before God. He says in verse 17, Here is our love made perfect. Now by perfect he doesn't mean that we are called upon to give perfection because we're not capable of it. We're simply not capable of it. The word perfect, telos in the Greek, means complete. It's got the idea of completeness. So he says, here is our love made complete, that we may have boldness, and the word boldness in the Greek means frankness of speech, in other words, not have any diffidence of speaking out before the angel. There will be some that will be speechless. We know that from Scripture. They'll be speechless. But we shouldn't have any fear of speaking out the judgment seat. He says that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, that is, as Christ is, so are we in this world. So we are members of the body of Christ and very often we are treated like he was. Then he says this in verse 18. There is no fear in love. Now the word fear there is phobos. And phobos means dread. You know, that, that feeling of utter dread and consternation. So he says there's no, no fear or dread in agape, but complete Agape casts out phobos or dread. We get the word phobia, of course, from that word phobos. Because fear hath torment. And we know what that's like. Mental torment is an awful thing. He that feareth is not made perfect or complete in love. So what's the antidote to that kind of fear? Good intent, isn't it? A desire to do the right thing. A desire to uphold divine principles in our life as best we can and when we do stumble to seek forgiveness and to get back on the path and to have that godly fear that reverence that he will look down upon kindly because he knows that we're trying that we have this intent to do what is right before him now, i wanted to introduce this subject by taking you to those passages that we've just considered because it's important that we proceed with that kind of atmosphere that we have this, this knowledge that we can be in the kingdom. God wants us to be in the kingdom. He is prepared to forgive. He sees that those kinds of qualities that we have been talking about. And they're not difficult, really. It's just about the desire to do so. What I'm going to do now is use two passages. We could use three. I'm going to use Deuteronomy 33, verse 2. Psalm 68, verses 1 to 3. And and uh, Psalm 68, verse 17, in the context of the judgment seat of Christ. We could use Habakkuk 3, but we're going to use that later on when we come to deal with other matters. So come back with me, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 33. Now, these references are very important because they do several things for us. Firstly, they demonstrate where the judgment seat will be. That's the clear implication of these three references. Deuteronomy 33, verse 2, Psalm 68, 17, and Habakkuk 3, uh, verses 1 to 7. They, they set forth very plainly that the judgment seat will be at Mount Sinai. That's one thing they do. The second thing they do is they give us a path by which Christ and the saints will come from Sinai to make their way to the land. They demonstrate that path. They show us where they will go as a, as a company. So when you come to Jeremy 33, the first verse tells you your context. 
It's a blessing of Moses upon the twelve tribes of Israel. He says, and this is the blessing wherewith Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. Now it's very important that you recognise who is being spoken to here. Because you see, in the next verse, we read about a them. The them are the twelve tribes of Israel, the children of Israel of verse 1. Verse 2 says, and he said, so here comes the blessing. Yahweh came from Sinai. Now, in actual fact, Brother Thomas correctly translates that, and you can just pop this little word in, in the text, it will tell you exactly how it should be read. It should read, Yahweh came in from Sinai. Well, the first question is, into where? Well, the clue is in verse 1. Because you see, we're told this is a blessing about the 12 tribes of Israel. It's about the redemption of Israel. So they're going to the land of Israel. So they come into the land of Israel. So where do they come from into the land of Israel? Well, from Sinai. You see, so the march, or what we call the march of the rainbow angel, begins from Sinai. And it says, he rose up from Seir, that's Edom, unto them. Now this word rose up in the Hebrew, Zarak, means to rise like the sun, to irradiate or to shoot forth beams like the sun. Of course, it's a wonderful type of figure or a symbol for our Lord Jesus Christ as the sun of righteousness. He's got to come in from the east because the sun rises from the east. So they're going to make their way through the deserts. They're going to come through Edom and then come into the land from the east like the sun. It says he shined forth, so there's your sun again, he shined forth from Mount Paran, which is in the middle of the, what we would call the Sinai Peninsula, and he came with 10,000 of saints. Now who's he coming for? Well, we were told, weren't we? He's coming for them, the children of Israel, who will be in the land at the time. He came with 10,000 of saints. That word came is a different word than the first one uh, in this verse. This word athar in the Hebrew means to arrive or to appear speedily, suddenly and unexpectedly, which of course is exactly what's going to happen when Christ and the saints arrive at the Mount of Olives, unknown to the, to the nations who have gathered there, and of course we know it's going to happen after that. Then we read, from his right hand went a fiery law for them, that is for Israel. So these 10,000s, the, the word in the Hebrew, ribaba, means an abundance or a myriad, and we know that it's used in the scripture uh, in many places to represent an innumerable multitude. Places like 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 15. Though ye have 10,000 instructors in Christ, says the apostle, you have not many fathers. Chapter 14, verse 19 of 1 Corinthians and Jude, verse 14, use that same language of this vast innumerable company of saints. And from his right hand, the hand of authority and power, there's what's called a fiery law, an eshdath in the Hebrew, a fire law. Fire being, of course, the symbol for divine judgment. Brother Thomas, therefore, translates it a fiery mandate, a mandate of judgment. Rotherham says fire to guide them. Well, this is a wonderful little passage because it's talking about our future. If we are there with our Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, we're going to start this wonderful journey, like the ark did, by the way, from Sinai, into the land for the redemption of the nation of Israel. Just read on though in verse 3 of this chapter. It says, Yea, he loved the people. Rotherham translates it, he loved the tribes. You see, he's talking about the children of Israel. He loved the tribes. 
All his saints are in my hand. So the right hand that we read about in verse 2, he's got the saints, that is the, the means of affecting the judgments in his power. And then it says why they are there. It says, and they sat down at thy feet. Everyone shall receive of thy words. Everyone's going to carry away or bear away, says uh, Rotherham in his translation, some of thy words. That's the reason why these people are there as part of this community of saints. Because they have sat down before the word of God and bore away those words and carried them away into their lives. That's the reason why they're there. Let's go to our second reference for Psalm 68. Now, as I made that comment a moment ago, the ark, of course, was built from materials brought out of Egypt at Mount Sinai. It took six months to actually build it. Then, as we pointed out in the previous class, it was put up on the first day of the first month of their second year out of Egypt, and the glory of Yahweh dwelt between the cherubim. And we know what the cherubim represent, the saints in glory. You see, what we have here is a wonderful type. Now, if you come to Psalm 68, you'll notice right across the top of the page of my Bible, and, of course, in the comments made just after the chapter heading by the translators, it says a prayer, a prayer of David, at the removing of the ark. So Psalm 68 was written at the time when David brought the ark up to Jerusalem, put it in his own little round tent outside his, his palace. So, you see, that's the background of this. And, of course, it's a wonderful type because that ark, with its mercy seat and its combined cherubim, all from the same piece of gold, with the divine Shekinah glory dwelling in the midst thereof, is representative of Christ and the saints in glory. And it's going from where? From Sinai, where it was constructed and glorified, to the land, to what's called the sanctuary in verse 17. There is your type, which tells you something, doesn't it? It tells you that the judgment seat of Christ is at Sinai. Because some people say, oh, no, it's at Jerusalem, which is an absolute impossibility if you know anything about Bible prophecy. Because it's going to happen 10 years before Armageddon. Can you go to Jerusalem for the judgment seat tomorrow? How would that be? All right? It's just not going to work. But I get, I get emails saying, you know, will the judgment seat be at Jerusalem? What a ridiculous notion that is. Let's go to the Bible. It tells you very, very clearly that the judgment seat will be at Sinai. But what about the way this psalm starts? Verse 1. Let God arise. Now, straight away, we've got to notice something very important here. This is actually a quotation. We're actually getting a quotation here from another part of the Old Testament. We'll see in a minute. And the word God there is, of course, the Hebrew word Elohim. And Elohim means mighty ones. And when it's in relation to the things of the kingdom, this is about the saints in glory. This is actually a citation from Numbers chapter 10. Again, two hands would be very useful. I'm going to keep one in Psalm 68. I'm going to come back to Numbers chapter 10. Because in Numbers 10, verses 33 to 36, we have the, the blessing that was given when the ark moved. Verse 33 of Numbers 10. And they departed from the Mount of Yahweh three days' journey. And the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh went before them in the three days' journey to search out a resting place for them. Now that is also very significant. This is an aside. The, the Ark, if you go back to Numbers chapter 10, you'll see that the Ark 
on its journey to the land was always in the middle of the marching order of Israel. You can just read that if you go back and have a look uh, at uh, verse 21 thereabouts. Uh, you'll see that it, the ark normally was travelling in the middle of the nation. It had several tribes in front and several tribes behind it. But not here for the first three days. For the first three days, it goes in front of the nation. So why? Well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? The mercy seat of the ark represents our Lord Jesus Christ. And he has gone before us, as it were, on a three-day journey before us. Three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. And then raised from the grave and immortalised, he led the way towards the land. That's what this is telling us. Right, so it's, it's highlighting the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. But read on, verse 34. And, and the cloud of Yahweh was upon them by day when they went out of the camp. And it came to pass when the ark set forward that Moses said, Rise up, Yahweh. Now, flicking back to Psalm 68, keeping Numbers 10, here's your quotation. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, says Psalm 68, verse 1. Here Moses said, Rise up, Yahweh, and let thine enemies be scattered, and let them that hate thee flee before thee. When it rested, he said, Return, O Yahweh, unto the many thousands of Israel. So you see, this is an actual quotation, but there's a difference. And the difference is important. Because you see, whereas back in Numbers 10, it's Yahweh... Let Yahweh arise. Yahweh means he who will become. It's prospective. It's looking to the future of what God will be. But when David writes this psalm about bringing the ark to Jerusalem, to its final resting place, he says, now the ark's in the company of God who has become. There are mighty ones. Let Elohim arise. They're the vehicles. They're the ones who are carrying glory now. Get the idea of that? Well, let's read on in, in this psalm, Psalm 68. As smoke, is, as smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melteth before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. Oh, that that day would soon come. This world is collapsing under the weight of its own iniquities, brothers and sisters. And one wonders just how much longer it can go on. Let the wicked, the lawless, as the word means in the Hebrew, perish at the presence of God. But let the righteous be glad. Here are those people with good intent. Let them rejoice before God. Yea, let them exceedingly rejoice. And you will, when your nature is changed. Sing unto God, sing praises to his name. Extol him that rideth upon the heavens by his name, Yah, and rejoice before him. Now there's a slight problem there. You see those words in green on the screen? The, the word in the Hebrew there is not heavens. It's Arabah. And Arabah doesn't mean heavens. Arabah means deserts. Alright? It's, it's a place out in the wilderness. That's why Rotherham translates it correctly. He says, that rideth through the waste plains. So you see, we're going back to Deuteronomy 33 here because it gave us a path. It gave us a path from Sinai north to Mount Paran, then east to Eden, then around to the land. Okay? It's in the, it's in the Sinai Peninsula. It's the Arabah. Now you can see a map there. This little map will tell you 
In fact, it shows you Arabah. There it is, the word. This is the Arabah that's being referred to. So it's between Mount Sinai and, of course, their final destination, which is Jerusalem. And that destination is given to you in verse 17. So come to verse 17 of Psalm 68. The chariots of God are 20,000. Now chariots, of course, in those days were vehicles of warfare. And so the saints will be vehicles of warfare in the future. Even thousands of angels, it says. Now I'm not talking here about the angels that we know that are working in the earth right now. This is talking about the angels of the future. In fact, that word shinam in the Hebrew means to change or to reiterate or to repeat something or thousands of repetitions or myriads. So Rotherham translates it, the chariots of God are two myriads, thousands repeated. In other words, an innumerable company. But if you wanted an alternative, there are those who translate it, the changed ones. Well, that'll do me too, because these people are changed ones. They've been changed at Sinai. So here we've got the saints. But then you've got that phrase there in green on the screen, the latter portion of this verse, which sadly has been a little bit mangled by the translators. Let's get it right. Let's get the translation right. Ginsburg translates it this way. The Lord hath come from Sinai into the sanctuary. Much better. The Companion Bible says, Yahweh among them hath come from Sinai into his sanctuary. Very good. And the Jerusalem Bible says, The Lord has left Sinai for his sanctuary. So you see, that's how it should be translated. This is about a journey, a journey that's got two bookends. One is at Sinai, that's the, that's the jump-off point, and the other, of course, is the destination, the sanctuary, which, of course, is obviously Jerusalem or Mount Zion, where, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ will establish the throne of David. And that's like bringing the ark, isn't it? It's the type of the ark coming from Sinai, finally put in its resting place by David. That, brothers and sisters, is where we are headed. So if you take a little bit of a stand back from those two passages, and we can add to them Habakkuk 3, as I said. This is the path taken by Yahweh Sabaoth, he who will become armies, as seen by Moses and David, Habakkuk later. They leave Sinai, just like Israel did of old with the ark, and the glory of Yahweh between the cherubim. And we know from other passages, Habakkuk 3 assists in this, tells us that Christ and the saints have a work before they get to the sanctuary, to Zion. They have a work amongst the Sinaitic Arabs, and we'll deal with that in some detail in the future, God willing. They also have a work in Egypt prior to Armageddon. In Isaiah 19, you've got the smiting and healing of Egypt. But then the path takes them through Mount Paran into Eden, through the Arabah. You can see there the purple language, Arabah. And, of course, coming in from the east, arriving at the Mount of Olives, to the sanctuary. We know, of course, what will happen then. So this type strongly suggests the judgment seat is at Mount Sinai. Pretty clear, isn't it, when you look at it that way. Let's turn then, brothers and sisters and young people, to the process of judgment. We've seen the end of it. We've seen where we're heading. Let's just step back now and look at this process that we're all going to have to face. Now, in our first study, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, we demonstrated that the angels, 
Their first work when they are sent forth is to raise the dead and to transport them to Sinai. When that's done, they will come looking for those who are alive and remain, the responsible living, and transport us, as 1 Thessalonians 4.17 indicates, to the judgment seat. Then we have an interview process that will begin. Now in a moment we're going to explore, we're going to dig down into Romans chapter 14 verses 10 to 12 and see how critically important it is to this whole subject. That's the next stage, the interview process. And then when that process is complete or being completed, the angels will bring contemporary groups before Christ's judgment throne, beginning with the final generation, that means most of us here, you and me, and working back to Adam, who with his generation will be the last to appear. Now, how do we know that's true? I mean, you can't just say it without some proof, can you? Well, you've got proof. And the proof is in Matthew chapter 20. So come to Matthew chapter 20. Verses 1 to 16, we have the parable, of course, of the workers or the labourers in the vineyard. And we're pretty familiar with this story. What you need to notice about the story, though, is that it begins and ends with the same words. Have a look at verse 30 of chapter 19 of Matthew. And you'll see it says there, But many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Those same words occur in chapter 20 and verse 16. Now, this is it's quite a good idea to highlight those words because they, they, they bookend the parable. And clearly, the Lord wants us to understand the principle involved in that. So the last shall be first and the first last. And then he adds in verse 16, for many be called, but few chosen. And of course, by called, he means all of those who have been called to the truth from the very beginning of time. Many called. And of course, the whole nation of Israel was called throughout its history. Those who lived in his day were called. Most of them won't be in the kingdom. Hopefully there will be a higher degree of Gentiles in the kingdom. But that, of course, will be proven in time. So there's the principle involved. Now, when you look at the parable, we know the parable well. You've got a vineyard, you've got a master of the vineyard, and you have people who can labour in it. So look at verse 2. Let's read it in verse 1. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder, which went out early in the morning to hire labourers into his vineyard. And when he had agreed with them, the labourers, for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard, now, it's very important to notice that there was an agreement here. So they shook hands, as it were, on an agreement. That verse is talking about those who were called under the covenant that God made at Sinai with the nation of Israel, under the law of Moses. Because when they stood before that mountain, they said, All that Yahweh has spoken, we will do and be obedient. There was an agreement between God and Israel. Right? So that's that crowd. But read on, verse 3. And he went out about the third hour, so we're at nine o'clock, and saw others standing on the marketplace. He said to them, Go ye also to the vineyard, and whatsoever is right, I will give you. And they went their way. Now, there's no agreement here. This is based on faith. You know, I used to be 
uh, I used to be a recruiter. I used to interview, in, in, interview hundreds of people who were looking for a job. And I can tell you, when we got down to the last dozen or so, and we had a second interview, the one question that was prominent by all of those interviewees was, how much is the pay? Right? What's the salary? They all wanted to know what they were going to get paid. Yeah, it's natural, of course. Not here. Here it is. You go to the vineyard, and when the day comes for a reward, I'll give you what's right. Would you trust an employer today on that basis? Unlikely. But you see, that's where we are, brothers and sisters. This is about the calling of the Gentiles. This is about people being called to serve in the vineyard on the basis of faith. They have confidence that Christ the judge will do the right thing. They're not ticking boxes and saying, well, I kept this law and I kept this law and I did this from my youth, as the young man said to Christ. No, that's not the basis of it. They come to the vineyard on the basis of their faith and their confidence in the ruler of the vineyard. That goes right back to where we began, isn't it? Right back to the principles of 1 John, having confidence in our God. And so when you read on, you've got them down to verse 6, you've got the 11th hour, this is 5 p.m. in the afternoon, and they knocked off at 6 p.m. So these people, at the end of the day, they only work for one hour. Now what happens? You know what happens, don't you? What happens is that when the time comes, read this in verse, uh, in verse uh, 8, so when even was come, the Lord of the vineyard saith unto his steward, Call the labourers and give them their hire. Where are you going to start this process? Beginning from the last unto the first. That's chapter 19 verse 30, chapter 20 verse 16. Beginning from the last unto the first. And we know what, we're not going to go into the, into the responses that were given here. The principle is clear, isn't it? And there are reasons, there are practical reasons why it will be necessary, I believe, to interview those of the last generation before those of past generations. And so we're going to have people who've come going back from ourselves right back to Adam. He's going to be the last one to come before Christ. And I think he's going to be waved to the right. The trouble that man has caused for 6,000 years is unbelievable. But you see, it doesn't depend on your history. It depends on your intent. And we know from the record of Scripture that Adam taught his sons, Cain and Abel, properly the things of the truth. We know that, all right? So I'm confident that Adam got his act together. He's given us a lot of trouble. There's going to be a lot of people who won't be there because of what he did, because of the nature that we got from him. But I think he'll be in the kingdom because of the principle of divine forgiveness. We need to be confident about that. But you'll see at the base of this slide a very important statement. Because the judgment seat is about upholding the righteousness of God. And I know some people say, well, why would you bother? God knows whether you'll be in the kingdom or not. Why would you bother all that? Well, he's going to bother because it's all about upholding his righteousness before the world. And that's what our Lord Jesus Christ will do, as we shall see. Now, this process of judgment, we pointed out, we'll remind you in a moment, that the actual process is about 12 months. 
Just calculate the time if Christ was to interview personally each responsible person, individually. This is a very conservative number. Let's say there's 20 million responsible, right? I think it would be a lot more than that. Let's just say there's 20 million responsible people at the judgment seat. Given one minute per interview, it would take him, if he worked around the clock 24 hours a day, which he could do, it would take him 38 years to give them all a one minute interview. Let's just drop the number down. Let's come down to 10 million, which is far too little, and give a one hour interview to each one. It would take him 1,142 years to do that. He worked around the clock. Now, it's ridiculous, isn't it? So that's not what's going to happen. Hence, Romans 14, verses 10 to 12, is very important. And it achieves at least two things. It shows how the process will be speeded up considerably. And it vindicates God's righteousness in the process. So let's have a look at it, shall we? Romans chapter 14. Now we're quite familiar with the context of this chapter. There were problems in the ecclesia at Rome. There was a Jewish, strong Jewish element, and there was, of course, a strong Gentile element. The Jews who had come out from being under law, some of them had not come out from being under law, insisted on keeping the Sabbath and other holy days and, and not eating certain things, etc. Whereas the Gentiles didn't have that culture, that background, and they were quite ready to not keep the Sabbath. They would keep the first day of the week or other days, but not the Sabbath necessarily. And this caused tension in the meeting. And this chapter is about trying to quell that tension. And we're not going to go to that aspect of it. We're going to just talk about the Apostle's warning of the judgment seat of Christ. And in verse 10 we read this. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it naught thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now straight away, something needs to be pointed out. In the text, at least in some texts, it's Christos and not Theos that occurs at the end of that verse. It should actually be, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now, if that was where you left it, you could say, well, it's a toss-up. I prefer this one and you prefer that one. Well, you see, fortunately, we don't have to worry about that because the scripture speaks for itself. I'm going to use my two hands again. I'm going to keep my hand in Romans 14. I'm going to come back to Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 23 because there's a quotation from this chapter. Isaiah 45. And when you get a New Testament quotation of the Old, it's not just quoting words. It is quoting words, but it's quoting a context. And that's what the Apostle's doing here. So he's going to quote from Isaiah 45, verse 23. Now you'll notice the similarity of language, because in verse 11 of Romans 14 he says, For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. Well, what does Isaiah 45, 23 actually say? It says, I've sworn by myself, so it's God speaking, 
The word has gone out from my mouth in righteousness, principle here of in righteousness, because that's what the judgment seat's about, upholding his righteousness, and shall not return, he says, that unto me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear. You see, that's clearly telling us that we're standing before God, isn't it? Well, how would you do that at the judgment seat? Well, you see, Christ is not going to interview people, but the angels will. And they're the ones who will do the interviewing. That's why it says the judgment seat of God, not the judgment seat of Christ. You know, if you want further proof of that, you come back to Romans 14. Not only does he quote Isaiah 45, 23 and verse 11, he then summarises it in verse 12. Look at verse 12. So then, so here's your summary. So then, he says, every one of us shall give account of himself to Christ. No. To God. And the importance of this verse, this passage of scripture, is that it's telling us something about the process of judgment. It's the angels, and we'll see this from other passages of Scripture, it's the angels who will do the work of interviewing the responsible. Now let's just look at some more details here. Look at that verse 11 again, that word <coughs> confess. Every tongue shall confess to God. It's a very large Greek word, exodologiomeo, and it's got logio in it, or logos, the idea of speaking. It means to speak out and to confess fully. And you might shudder at that prospect. But this is what John was talking about. He says, you'll have no fear. You'll have boldness. You'll have frankness of speech in the day of judgment. You might be nervous, but because you know that you have tried. You know that you tried to be genuine. You haven't tried to fool God. You know that. You have a confidence. And when the questions are asked, well, what was that about? You can give an answer. And if you've been forgiven your failings, that's not in the records. We're going to see. That might be brought up. So you look a bit like Nehemiah. When he prayed frequently, he says, remember me for good. Not the evil I've done. I've asked for forgiveness for that. Remember me for good. And that remembrance is in the book. The books that will be used at the judgment seats we'll see in our next study, God willing. Now, if you think that that's over the top, look at verse 12. So then every one of us, so this is about individuals, not about a collection of people, but individuals, every one of us shall give account of himself to God. And that word account is logos. And logos means the word spoken, an expression of the thoughts of the mind, an account of or an exposition. Are you ready for that? Exposition. Really? We shouldn't be fearful. Because you see, the bad is gone if it's forgiven. Only the good is there. All right? We're all going to be humbled by the process, brothers and sisters, every one of us, because the good's not going to be what it could be. The good's going to be undermined, unfortunately, by weakness and frailty. Yeah, so, you know, it's not going to be what it could be. But we still have the confidence that we have had good intent. See how important that passage is in relation to the process of judgment? 
Now, very quickly, just a review of the length of the judgment seat of Christ, the actual process. You'll recall that in our first study, we went back to Exodus 40. We showed that the ark began its journey to Zion about 13 months after Israel left Egypt in Numbers 10 verse 11. We saw that the ark and the tabernacle were constructed from materials brought out of Egypt, just like we, the materials will be brought out of spiritual Egypt to, to Mount Sinai. The process leading to the manifestation of the glory of God in the tabernacle, which we saw in Exodus 40:34, that process from beginning to end was a little under 12 months. And then the glory of Yahweh appeared between the cherubim, signifying the immortalization of the saints at Sinai. <coughs> so we can make a conclusion from that, can't we? From the time all the responsible dead are gathered from the nations, that is Egypt, to their glorification will be about 12 months. We wouldn't want to go on too much longer than that, would it? 12 months is long enough to have to wait to divest ourselves through the glory of God of this nature. But you know what? The Apostle quotes Isaiah 45, 23 in another place. Come along to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11. We'll start this at verse 9. Wherefore, it says, God hath also highly exalted Christ and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, Yahweh's salvation, here comes the quote, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, that is, those resurrected from under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And there will be people there, like Achan, like Esau and others, who will be rejected. But even they, like Achan, will cut to the point where they'll say, the glory be to God. You know, that's the right spirit, isn't it? Even if you're rejected, that's the right spirit. It's all about the upholding of the righteousness of God. That's why there has to be a judgment seat at Christ. And it won't stop with us, brothers and sisters. It's going to go right through all the nations. And every single knee on earth, every living knee on earth, and every tongue that can wag on earth post-divine judgments is going to glorify our God through Jesus Christ. And we are the first cat of the ring. Accepted or unaccepted. That's what it's about. And more time is likely to be spent with the rejected by the angels for that purpose. And the record's going to be pretty long. And even the righteous will be greatly humbled by the experience. As I said, like Nehemiah, remembered only for good. No flesh will glory in God's presence. His righteousness will be seen to be upheld. You know, when you consider the subject, and some say that this is a bit negative. Well, if it's negative, I'm sorry, but you can read Nazareth Revisited and you can get a lot more than what you're going to see on the screen here about this subject. This is where it comes from. You know, the, the righteousness of God will be seen even in the fate of those who are rejected. They go to the left hand of Christ. There will be shame, Daniel 12, verse 2. Tribulation, anguish and wrath, Romans 2, 8 and 9. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, Matthew 8, 12. 
And the punishment will be meted out by degrees, few stripes, many stripes, Luke 12, 47 and 48. Shame will be revealed before brethren. That's one of the awful prospects, isn't it? Revelation 16, 15, Luke 12, verse 3. And they will depart from Christ in fearful expectation of inevitable destruction, Hebrews 10, 27. Cast into outer darkness, which Brother Roberts suggests, I believe correctly so, is Europe in the time of turmoil, turmoil to come, to suffer with the nations, Matthew 22, verse 13. You want to have a, a read of that kind of material? Have a look at Nassau's Revisited, pages 393 and 394, and you'll see Brother Roberts gives great expression for those things there. Now, I want to finish tonight by coming to that passage which our Brother Chairman read for us, Matthew chapter 25. This is one of the most potent and powerful demonstrations of the judgment seat of Christ in all of the scripture. And it's done in parabolic form, where people are represented by animals, sheep and goats. But there's a lot of literal in here as well. And in verse 31 we read, When the Son of Man, now stop there. Whenever you read the title, The Son of Man, it's not about Christ being a son of Adam. He was. It's not about that. This is the title that's given to him of his delegated authority to determine the destinies of men. That's what it's about. His delegated authority from God to exercise dominion in the earth. And you can prove that by your own study of that subject. So here is the judge coming to determine destinies. Goes on to say, and all the holy angels with you, yeah, because they will have a big part to play, as we shall see in our studies. Then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And some say, well, that's got to be the throne of David, doesn't it? No. Whatever throne Christ sits on is a throne of glory. He's sitting on one now. It's not in Zion. It's at the right hand of his God. It's a throne of glory. Wherever he sits is a throne of glory. This, this one happens to be at Sinai. It's a judgment throne. And then it says in verse 32, And before him shall all shall be gathered all nations. Now, why would he say that, brothers and sisters? Well, of course, he knew that the gospel would go to the Gentiles, but the disciples didn't. They had no clue, did they? They didn't have a clue about the gospel going out to the Gentiles. In fact, they resisted it. You know, Peter had to go through a, a terrible process to, 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 to realise that God was going to call Gentiles to the faith. They had no clue. So he puts that in there because there's going to be a lot of Gentiles there, you and me included. And he shall separate them one from another, it says, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. So here they are, people of all nations will be there. And of course, to separate the sheep from the goats would suggest that you're separating the, the, the smaller number from the more numerous. In other words, there's a lot more goats than there are sheep. Many called, few chosen. It's an actual fact we choose ourselves. We either choose to be a sheep or we choose to be a goat. So there are two classes at the judgment seat. Sheep and goats. I mean, it's pretty simple, isn't it, really? Let's have a look at the contrast between sheep and goats. Anybody ever kept goats? They'll know what I'm talking about. If you ever kept sheep, you'll know the contrast between sheep and goats. Sheep are dependent. Dependent on their shepherd. 
Goats are independent. They want to do their own thing. Leave me alone. I want to do my own thing, my own way. Get out of my way. That's the spirit of goats. Sheep are submissive. Goats are rebellious. Sheep are willing. Goats are cold and callous. They don't care about anybody else. Sheep are obedient. Goats are disobedient. Sheep are gregarious. They love to be in the company of their brothers and sisters, their fellow sheep. But goats are solitary. They love to be alone and out doing their own thing. In the Middle East, sheep were white and goats were normally black. So even their covering, their coat, spoke something about attitude. And sheep will only eat that which the shepherd leads them to, besides still waters, the, the tender grasses that the shepherd provides, whereas goats will chew on anything. Leather boots, clothing hanging on a line, they'll chew on anything. You see, they're people. They're people who want to do their own thing. They want to have the freedom to do their own thing. They want to consume whatever the world dishes up. It doesn't matter what it is. And today, of course, it dishes up a lot of stuff and it's in your hand. And there's no barriers unless you're smart enough to put them there. You know, that's, that's the situation we're in, isn't it? So here we've got a choice, haven't we? You can either be a sheep or you can be a goat. There's nothing in between. There's no she-oat, is there? There's nothing that's half sheep and half goat. You're either sheep or you're goat. Pretty simple, isn't it? So what does it come back to? It comes back to intent. It comes back to what, what, what you want to be, your intent, your choice. But there's a reward for those who are sheep. It says in verse 33, he shall set the sheep on his right hand. Now all Christ is going to do when, the, when these successive generations come, contemporary generations, you know, all the Christadelphians of Queensland for the last 50 years or whatever it might be, come before him, he's not going to do anything other than smile and point, wave to the right, or frown and wave to the left. Some will say, because they'll know what is going to happen, they'll know what the judge is going to be, that will be found out in the tent with the angel. They will say, but Lord, Lord, we did this, we did that. He said, who are you? I never knew you. I don't know who you are. But, but, but my name's in the ecclesial role. Yeah, well, I don't know. That's going to be a terrible fate. Then shall the king say to them on his right hand, Come ye, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now what that verse means is that this is the point of change. This is the point of immortalisation. That's very important in this context because we have those who suggest that what follows is the interview process. It's not. The interview has gone before. There is that passage in Psalm 16, isn't there, verse 11, Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand, said Christ, are pleasures forevermore. Man, is that true? Will that not be true? At thy right hand, Christ, we could say, are pleasures forevermore. You see, it has been suggested that Christ separates the sheep from the goats before interviews are done. Because they say, well, the interview is, is coming up. It's coming up in, in the following verses. Not so. That's not an individual process. 
There's no individual interview here. It's a collective conversational discussion. It's got nothing to do with interviews. So we've got to get this wrong. Verse 34 is the edict that produces instantaneous change in the faithful. Verse 46, if you read it, suggests that. All right? This is about them being changed there and then in the presence of the goats. So those over there on the left actually see the change of nature taking place of the community on the right. They see it happen. And then they're shut away. <coughs> While the rejoicing goes on over here on the right. Luke 13, 28, it's clear that the rejected will see the righteous in the kingdom of God. That's the only time they will see him in the kingdom of God. Because they're going into outer darkness. And Matthew 25, verses 34 to 45, is not a personal interview where everyone speaks as required, as we saw by Romans 14, verses 10 to 12. Someone asks a question. Well, Lord, when, when did we see you with these things? Notice what he says, verse 35. He says, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in naked and you clothed me. You know, the kindnesses that are shown here are only those that the Lord could fittingly himself identify with. He was never spiritually naked, was he? So he couldn't talk about spiritual nakedness. But Brother Carter makes this comment. He says, to feed a sick soul may have greater value than feeding a hungry body. To help the spiritually weary may fill a greater need than restoring physical vigour. So you see, the law could only identify with physical issues. He couldn't identify with spiritual issues or spiritual failure. But that's the most important thing. And these people are there on the right hand because of character. And that's what's driven home by what follows here from verse 35 onwards. I want you to notice something very important in this section. Come to verse 40. When they ask this question, when saw we thee sick? And so on. Verse 40. And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren. I would suggest strongly that you underline those words, highlight those words. These my brethren. Because this is the ones on the right. They're the ones that have just been immortalised. They're the brethren of Christ. But come down to verse 45, because this is about those on the left. Then shall he answer them on the left, saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, there's no my brethren, because they're not. They might have been on the wrong. Because they're their responsible people. But they're not his brethren. What a shocking thing that will be to him. I think it's pretty powerful, isn't it? Very powerful. In Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23, which we won't turn up, suggests the rejected already realise their fate. Because in that context, it's about you shall know them by their fruits. And they'll put their hand up and say, Lord, Lord! No good. All he will do, brothers and sisters, is give a one-line answer. Depart from me. I don't even know who you are. And so that, brothers and sisters, is being at the judgment seat of Christ. Now there's a whole lot more to talk about on this subject, and that will come, God willing, in our next study. Come, my people. Hide yourself 
korban. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.